How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hi, welcome to How I Got Here. This is uh, Focuswire Mozio's uh, weekly podcast. We're now in season two, where we interview innovators and entrepreneurs in travel and transportation. Uh, joining us this week is uh, Eric Nockfar. So um, we'll give you a better introduction in a second, but he works for Kluke. Kluke was created by CEO Ethan Lin, Bernie Yang, and our guest Eric Nockfar in 2014 in Hong Kong. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Kluke is a major online travel agency for tours, activities and attractions, as well as local transportation. It has indeed caught the eye of some of the leading investors in venture capital and currently has pocketed around $520 million in investments. The most recent fund uh, was $225 million Series D, which was led by the SoftBank Vision Fund. Uh, Eric, thank you very much for joining us on How I Got Here this week. It's uh, great to see. Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me. Okay, uh, Eric, as is, as is tradition on how I got here, we like to pose this question to all our guests and if you could tell us uh, how you got here. Sure, so yeah, um, as you mentioned, we started in 2013, uh, late 2014, um, but the, all, 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 the whole idea actually came together when me and my co-founder, Ethan, who I knew back in the, my banking days and the finance days, uh, we went on Nepal on a trip. Uh, to me, I think two really kind of memorable of experience in Nepal. One is actually not in Nepal, but pre-Nepal um, is going through hours of planning um, to, to get to know the, the landscape there, the merchants there, contact them. Uh, some actually didn't really speak the language. And I think that went through like really hours of planning, right? Um, the second memorable experience is actually carrying a bag of cash um, from Hong Kong because we're a group of people, uh, 10 people, and the merchants just didn't take credit card. Um, and we were carrying this bag of cash into Nepal. And all along, we had to, to <laughs> use that. So I think that was probably the more kind of, you know, memorable experience because we, we, we were worried you know, along the way, are we going to get robbed uh, or anything like that? Um, I think that basically gave us a, the, the idea that you know, the, all the hotels we pre-booked, right, um, planned ahead of time. But it was the experiences that we had to carry the cash for. Um, and that was kind of, kind of a light bulb and say, you know, why, why couldn't the experiences and in-destination services be as seamless as, you know, booking flight and hotel? And that where um, the whole thing kind of started to form. Uh, Bernie uh, actually was the interesting thing, right? He, he was, he's our co-founder, uh, more on the tech side. Um, I think I went for a similar experience in scouting through LinkedIn, um, just like a scout for experiences in Nepal at the very beginning. Um, to, to really go through, I think at least like hundreds and hundreds of um, profiles because I'm, you know, I'm zero in, in, in tech, um, but to eventually kind of found him um, who, you know, luckily was based in Hong Kong, uh, but actually was from China. Um, so eventually we kind of came together and built our uh, tech and dev team uh, starting from Hong Kong, but also then extended it to uh, Shenzhen, which as many of you guys know, is kind of called the Silicon Valley uh, of China. Okay, right. Thank you very much, Eric. So uh, before we get into the questions, I'm going to ask you something about Nepal. Yeah, it's my favorite. It's my favorite country in the whole world. I traveled there for a couple of months in 2001. Those activities that you were trying to trying to book, were they 
kind of mass market things. I'm thinking of, you know, like the main temple up on the hill in Kathmandu or some of the things in Pokhara, or were they really specific things such as trekking in the Himalayas or stuff like that? Yeah, I would say both, right? I mean, because it's the first time, so we definitely did, you know, the most popular things. So the temples in Kathmandu and stuff, right? But at the same time, we went into Pokhara, um, which actually yeah. doesn't have an international flight there, uh, and did this really memorable experience called parahawking, right? So you paraglide, but at the same time, there's a hawk that comes to you, and you know, there's a sustainability uh, aspect to that. Um, so we brought both experiences on, and in fact, if you check on our platform, um, my face and Ethan's face is actually on the on, on the on the on the platform uh, on the uh, on the images. So yeah, I think both, and then eventually, you know, if we look at the business. Um, and how that evolved, I would say that the most popular has to be there, right? I mean, if we look at travel market in general, first time and second time travel is still the mass, right? The unique experiences are getting more popular, but when you look at the sheer number, right, it's still the first time and second time travel. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the, one of the discussions that always comes up when it's related to tours and activities, you know, there's this big push about doing, you know, niche cooking things. But when you go to Paris, you probably still want to climb the Eiffel Tower, right? So it's, it's about selling both sides of things. Right. Okay. So uh, going back then, um, you, you had your kind of um, experience in investment banking or in the finance world, I think you said. When you, when you had these experiences about Nepal and you wanted to create something, what kind of... Um, kind of due diligence on your own idea did you go through before creating Kluke? Because, you know, um, you know, dare I say by 2014, it was a market that was getting a lot of attention. I think TripAdvisor had, had just bought Viator and, uh, you know, this is before Booking.com got into the game and Get Your Guide was around and all these other people. So what did you do? Like I said, what due diligence did you do around your own idea? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, we, we definitely had to size the industry. Um, you know, how big is that industry and is a trend there? I think, you know, from, from a size perspective, there were already research out there that, you know, it's close to a $200 billion uh, market yeah, size. Yeah. So from a size-wise, it ticked the box, right? The next thing we looked at is, you know, um, what is the pain point of this industry? Can we make a difference there? And I think the pain point that way we identify is the fact that they were still majorly offline um, and they didn't have technology to bring them online. Uh, I would say not even online, but mobile. Um, if you ask me, I think part of the reason why we see over the last decade or so uh, or more, um, the digitization of experiences industry just never took off versus, you know, flights and hotel, despite their all players, right? Viator has been around for quite a while already. Um, we fundamentally believe that mobile was the game changer because yeah. people were not pre-booking, right? They booked on in the trip. And that's some, something that we also learned uh, really just like a month or two into the launching of a platform because we launched with a desktop site. And then two months later, we quickly pivoted. Well, what is it pivoted? But we put kind of channel all our resources to actually develop the app. Um, and today, over 80% of our bookings happen on mobile, right? And yeah. over 50% happened in the destination. So I think that was kind of where we looked at it and saw that there was a true opportunity. The trend is there. And the timing was right because of mobile. Yeah. And um, a last one from me for a moment. But uh, you launched in Asia Pacific or in particular in your home region, first of all, simply by virtue of that's what where your home region was. You didn't have any initial designs on being a global player. Is that correct? 
Well, I would say that we had an eye for it, um, right. but I think we had to start small. So I'm, our, our, our kind of vision is always, you know, aim big, but definitely have to start small, build block by blocks, um, and then, you know, head to the global uh, expansion, which is where we are today. Okay, David. Well, it's just that, uh, you know, I've been very impressed at your guys' like rapid rise, and I think as kind of uh, Kevin alluded to, we've had actually a lot of uh, tours and activities providers uh, on the platform uh, this past uh, couple months here, head out and via tour. And uh, you know, one question I, I like to ask is, how have you thought about? Uh, bringing uh, these these guys online. So you mentioned that there was, uh, you know, it it had delayed, and obviously there's a lot of uh, back end providers out there, the peaks, the uh, the various, uh, you know, guys who are who their entire job is to uh, to give the software to these guys. But I think you mentioned earlier that there much of your industry doesn't have that, and you had to build a lot of it yourself. So how have you thought about where in the kind of like ecosystem you draw the line? Yeah, so we started off as a B2C platform, right? And I think that's going to be still at the core and the heart of the company as a DNA. Um, but I think as we kind of further develop um, our, our business, we realized that we do need the merchants to come online. However, uh, comparing Asia to Europe and US, the biggest difference on the supply side is Cuban capital costs. So in US and Europe, getting someone, hiring someone to just take down notes for the booking, um, you know, getting the redemption and, and so forth is costly. Hence, our theory is merchants are willing to pay um, a fee to these SaaS and technology SaaS companies to help manage the business more effectively. In Asia, however, the human capital cost is lower. So hence, they are not willing to fork out additional dollar to get the SaaS uh, technology to manage their business. What they really care about is, you know, how many more bookings can I get? So that's why SaaS never really worked in Asia. And that's not just towards an activity, but in pr primarily almost all industries that I know of. Now, SaaS will work if it's free. So that's where we had to come in and say, okay, we need to build something for a merchant, but we will have to offer it for free. Now, I have to admit, our merchant solutions is not as extensive as the pros one in Europe and US, but it gets the job done and it gets just the, our suppliers online on mobile, power instant availability, real-time availability, and instant confirmation. So that's where we had to finally get involved. And I think that also it really gave us an edge in Asia, whereby it, it kind of formed a barrier to entry because kind of players will, won't be able to easily come in to just you know get the same supply as ours, or I would say it will take a much longer time to be able to get such supply and such seamless experience. I so I have a follow up question on that. It's curious. So I remember I met up uh, with your your co founder when I was in Hong Kong a while back, and uh, he was talking about how one of your guys the way you guys think about yourself is as a super app, and uh, that is a concept I think that's only recently been introduced to America as people kind of think of Google Maps and Uber as trying to become that, but has been very commonly held in Asia and. Uh, I, I think that, you know, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that because I feel like in many ways the, the possibility that something can actually become a super app is because of the ecosystem ex that, uh, that exists in Southeast Asia and Asia of exactly what you just said, which is that um, people aren't willing to, uh, to pay for many of these other products, so like these SaaS products, so they'll go with someone like you who's willing to provide it for free. And it actually allows you to kind of get this, your, your talents in a bunch of different parts of the industry. And would you, would you like, how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think for us, the super app concept is 
appeals more to the user side. So that drives on how we build the services offerings to the consumer. Um, so from, from early days, I would say, uh, we started with tours and activities. And I think in, 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 in the West, um, this industry is more known as the tools and activities, but our vision eventually came down to becoming an all-service platform, um, an all, all a, a platform servicing uh, all the needs of a traveler when they're in the destination, right? So that's why we we kind of came in and says, you know, we are not just tools and activities, but kind of we're taking care of from the moment that you land all the way back when you go back home, right? So what is the first touch point, for example, in Asia, uh, is actually SIM cards and Wi-Fi. Back in the days, I think a lot of people looked at that and said, oh, this is just $1, $2 type of product. Why are we bothering about it, right? But it is a pain point. It's actually very, very painful if you don't have that Wi-Fi and SIM card. In the US and Europe, you have this um, uh, um, all, 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 all country uh, telecom uh, packages, but in Asia, it's still very much fragmented for each country. So that's where we came in and says, you know, we want to do something here. So we innovated on that front. Um, and then we touched on the tours and activities and all the way to even transportation. So that's where we call ourselves more of a super app for people when they're on the road. Okay. Um, uh, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, as David alludes to, the, <laughs> the super app concept has really only been become part of the vernacular here in the West in the last year and a half or so. I, I, I'm, I'm interested in your, in your response there. I mean, if you could take us back a little bit, I'm, I'm, I'm curious you know, about the formation of the company a little bit and some of that process for, you know, for the entrepreneurs that are, that are listening in. Now you said that Bernie was the, t the was the tech guy that was a part of the, you know, the, the trio of, of the, the three of you. Now, how did you and Ethan decide how you were going to split your roles and who was essentially going to become the CEO and who was going to take your position? Yeah, well, I think it kind of came naturally. So first of all, I think Bernie was an easy kind of take, right? Because <laughs> he, he, he was basically a tech guy. You know, me yeah. and Ethan had, you know, had, had zero knowledge on, on that front. So I um, really much rely on him to build up the, the, the tech team which is about 500 people today. Um, I think then on the uh, kind of business operation side, um, that's where me and Ethan uh, split. And both of us actually has been kind of doing each of our roles to some extent all along the way. Um, eventually, why we have to call in a CEO, I think it's more of, you know, when investors come in and says, you know, you, you eventually need, you know, kind of these titles and roles, right? Um, the other thing I would say is also, we really complement, me and Ethan really complement each other. He is the type where he is more kind of, you know, bigger picture, you know, delegation, uh, where I really like to dig into, de in, into the details. So from that angle, I would say that, you know, from a CEO perspective, to be able to really pull resources together and not get dragged into details, um, I think it's crucial. But at the same time, someone has to really go into details and make sure that, you know, things are set up um, in, in, in a much more professional way, meeting consumer needs. And that's where um, I also come in. But in terms of really, you know, is it demand? Is it supply? Is it like product? Like, I think, both of us have touched on, on, on various aspects of that. And, you know, you, you said, you know, you had 500 people on just on the tech side, on the tech side now. So back to those early days, I mean, how did you scale up the company from a people perspective? Was, was most of the investment in terms of human resources on the tech side or, were, or was it much more about supplier relationships? Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at internally in the early days, there's, there's really three main core areas that we would look at. And in fact, I would say that we're probably a little late on the fourth area, uh, which we can talk about it uh, later. Uh, but the three main core areas being tech, right? 
and then second is being supply, and that's in terms of priority already when I when I talk about it. And number three is actually then marketing. So we did actually put a lot more resources on the tech front to really kick it off. And that's where we build up um, the tech team in Shenzhen. Like being in Hong Kong, one of the most painful is a painful uh, uh, way to grow the business is there's just no engineers here. Um, luckily, we border Shenzhen, so it's very easy in terms of commuting, but also there's a uh, very big talent pool there. Um, so that's where we actually spend a lot of resources. And the second is actually in supply. So when we started the business, we didn't think about where was our customer. Actually, that's kind of, I think to us was this outside in approach because um, we yeah. didn't come from travel. I think a lot of travel agent uh, think about it is where's my customer and I'm going to go after that customer. We actually took a different approach. We looked at it is where is the supply and where, where can I add value to that? So at that time, because we were all sitting in Hong Kong, we looked at Hong Kong as a supply. And then we basically did a lot of work in consolidating and digitizing that supply. And then we looked at, you know, where is the most popular, where, where is uh, the main customer group? Um, and then gradually mapped that. Um, and then we did that again for, to the next destination like Singapore. And then we looked at where's the customer coming from. And then gradually it created that network effect. But till today, I would say that merchants and supply is still at the core. I think that is something to stay, right? Demand on how we acquire users you know, yesterday it's car probably SEM, right? Tomorrow could be, uh, well, already today is, is Facebook, right? Tomorrow could be Alexa, right? So the channel to acquire a user changes over time, but on the merchant side, that is something to stay. And that's where we've been spending a bit more resources, especially in the early days. So you said there were four, the three of the four. What is the fourth one? Human capital. So I think on the HR front, that was something that we were really late in the game. I think that was when we were, I remember our first kind of HR personnel that we brought on board was when we were already a 400 uh, team, people team. Wow. So I think then that definitely had a lot of, <laughs> I guess, all on, on, on the managers, I would say, right? But at the same time, I, I fundamentally believe that the best managers are also the best HR people, right? Um, so that's why we relied a lot on the managers to manage people, to manage the, the process. But however, as the team grows, there are other HR uh, kind of expertise that we needed. And but that, yeah. I would say that we were a bit late on that. <laughs> okay, David? Yeah, so it's, it's funny. So we work with you guys, Mozio, as, as one of your ground transportation partners and uh, enjoy our, our partnerships together. But one thing, actually, I think we noticed uh, when we first started with you guys, you guys been able, had been able to onboard certain uh, providers in areas that we ha had had trouble uh, you know, onboarding in, in Hong Kong. And, and you see Kluke marketing everywhere when you fly into to Hong Kong and uh, specifically around the airport train. And uh, I remember, you know, I know how hard it is to close some of these deals. I've had to personally jump on the phone myself and travel there myself. And uh, it got me thinking, it's like, how did you guys, guys prioritize your supply? Because one of the other uh, issues I think a lot of people have with the tourism activities market is you've got your scuba divers next uh, diving trips right next to your transfers, right next to your everything. It can be kind of, uh, at first blush, it can seem very scatterbrained uh, as a strategy, but clearly you guys have really thought about it. Yeah, well, I think one of the core core thing um, that we look at is scalability, right? How much of the demand is that product or that merchant um, is generating? How big is that existing industry? And then we look at is how much more can we add to that industry, of course. Um, but scalability is, is at the core of everything that we do. Um, so just like you said, right, we, if you look at uh, as a private one, 
kind of peer-to-peer -peer transfer versus rail, we would, of course, at the beginning, um, prioritize on rail. Um, the next thing that we'll do for the P2P is how do we build a platform that allow these P2P drivers to come on board, right? Um, but that is kind of, you know, it, it's, it's a very chicken and egg thing. So we would definitely go for product that is a bit more scalable. How did you, th talking about scalability, how did you think about which regions or cities to target next? Were you thinking of it from a domestic Hong Kong and Chinese outbound market, or were you thinking about those travelers within those markets that you were, uh, that you were targeting next? Yeah, well, we started off definitely from an inbound angle. So how many visitors come to this city or, or yeah, city, uh, less so country, um, which I think, you know, we were lucky that we were in Hong Kong. And if you look at Asia, Hong Kong actually do get, you know, really high number of travelers um, until last year. Um, you know, there was a lot of event that happened yeah. in Hong Kong that, that changes the, the, the dynamics. Um, and then the next is actually like Singapore, Bangkok, and those type of uh, destinations. So we did actually roll out city by city rather than like, you know, work with a DMC, like a destination management company or a wholesaler and just says, oh, let me just onboard all the products around the world. Um, that wasn't the approach. We, def we did it really city by city, um, which is where we wanted to add value um, to the merchant site. And more recently in the last few years, you've made a deliberate attempt to target Europe. And is, is that, again, is that using the same strategy and targeting Europeans who want to travel within Europe and the activities that those cities provide? Yeah, well, from a supply angle, um, the, the majority of the bookings that our European uh, merchant partners receive today are coming from our Asian uh, customer base. And I think oh, as, okay. a, as yeah. we evolve, you know, the approach will slightly adjust, right? Because we already have such network effect that we've created in Asia, by building out Europe, we can actually go a bit faster because we already have the demand and the traffic to just drive it into Europe. So then we will accelerate that expansion. But at the same time, yes, we do also see that once we, because we had European who were using our platform coming to Asia, right? And as we onboarded European destination, we actually see organically that the European travelers are also converting with us uh, in Europe. And, and I think that's the beauty of travel, um, that network effect that it, it produces over time as you build both demand and supply locally and to be able to match that. So Eric, yeah, I wanted to segue and take a little bit into the fundraising uh, discussion. So you have one very well-known backer <laughs> that uh, you might at this point be sick and tired of answering questions about, uh, but I feel uh, a necessity to ask uh, SoftBank, uh, you know, uh, back to you guys. And I um, you know, SoftBank strategy can aptly be summarized as we're going to pick the winners and then flood money into them and make sure somewhat by default of how much money and more resources they have, like you are truly the winners. Um, and that has been proven to maybe not be the wise, wise of a strategy as people thought it was in the past. And, uh, you know, clearly you guys are not among the headline uh, cases of WeWork and Uber and, and have uh, shown more diligence in how you use that money. So um, I, I think that there's this common... Um, uh, cautionary tale that entrepreneurs are so, uh, sometimes told in a little bit of an eye rolly way, which is be careful about the valuation you take and how much money you take. And uh, we're always kind of just kind of like, yeah, yeah, like VCs are telling us that because they want to give us less money at a better valuation. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm curious how you've thought about how do you, how to spend the money that you got because getting hundreds of millions of dollars wired into your bank account must uh, potentially cause you to get you know 
to you know branch out wider? How did you think about focus during a time like that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think you know from very day one, we've been very focused on sustainable growth. I think the the kind of kind of money burning type of situation, what you've seen with some other companies, um, I think sometimes to me it depends on industries, right? Um, in the much more frequently used uh, service industry, um, I think it makes more sense um, to kind of you know, uh, uh, spend more to acquire a customer because you would bet that the frequency of, of a service will, will come back one day and to be able to make up for that, right? Um, however, on, in travel, admittedly, the frequency is not there. So hence, that's why from day one, we've been always very focused on sustainable growth, ensuring that you know, every customer that we acquire, you know, can soon break even, right? So that has always been on core. Now, yes, indeed, we have also raised a lot of money and the latest investor being SoftBank. Now, why did we raise so much money? To some extent, it's less so about how much we really need to run the business. Um, you know, one um, story that I, I don't tell very often, um, but which actually kind of, you know, kind of, um, drove to how we, we think about fundraising was actually, you know, I think it was 2015 when we were raising Series B. Um, at the time of when we already signed the SPA, meaning, you know, the final agreement, um, we, the, the investor dropped out because they had some issues on, on, on their balance sheet and we couldn't fund the business. And over the, that few weeks, we almost had to close down because we waited too long to raise money. Um, but as a business grew that fast, we just needed working capital to finance it. So luckily, the existing investors that were with, with us uh, would continue to be very positive and that hence they came in and, and backed the company. Um, so from, from that experience onwards, we've always wanted to plan ahead. And I think we were glad that actually we did the, the round um, last year with SoftBank. You know, who knows, you know, a, a black swan event like this could have happened. Um, and, and that's where, you know, this for fundraising to us uh, is how we see it. I think what's interesting about that, that investment round that you had spring of last year. So it's around this time, isn't it? The, the May and May of 2019 yeah. was at the same time as you were expanding into Europe. And at the very same time, the same investor invested in your, what would become your European rival. Mm. which I thought was, which was very interesting. I'm certainly journalists. We thought that was a fascinating story. I mean, how to give us your kind of sense on how that was playing out and how you were going to answer questions regarding that, that, okay, well, SoftBank here is just going to bet on the one that's going to win in Europe, but you know, we'll, we'll support both, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, I would say that it was definitely a testament to the industry um, the fact that, you know, you know, SoftBank and many investors saw that there was, you know, truly an opportunity in this industry. And um, the, the, the new guys, including ourselves, is making a much stronger uh, momentum here and we can continue to capitalize on that. Um, and, and the other thing is, I would say, despite we had that expansion into Europe, and as I mentioned earlier, our expansion in Europe was mainly to serve our Asian travelers. But naturally, yeah. I do believe in the global network effect. So I, I will not... Um, uh, say no to a UK customer or a, a German customer coming to, to us and um, further uh, building that market as well. But I think what we also saw was a synergy with the SoftBank ecosystem, especially in, in the Asia side, right? A lot of the major investment like Grab, like uh, Oyo, um, Didi, uh, and even their own subsidiary, uh, Yahoo Japan, um, I think had a yeah. lot of synergies with us uh, on the Asia side. And I think that was what to some extent also convinced us and our board of directors 
um, to 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 be to, to be open to such a round and to, to be in partnership with the SoftBank. I think one of the things that's always been I found very interesting about the you know the tours and activities sector because I've written about it for a long time and also about hotels and airlines. Hotels and airlines, it's arguably are easier for a startup, say, to gain some traction because there are standards around connectivity and inventory and availability and all those kind of things. And that just doesn't exist in the tourism yeah. activities sector unless at some point the sector does come together. Now, there are the first kind of there, there were certainly before all the last madness of the last four or five months happened, there were the beginnings of that. I mean, what's Kluge's position on that? Because obviously standards is great from a connectivity to suppliers thing, but often there is a, a negative side to that. Where do you sit on the standards debate? I, I strongly believe that we have to get, get our hands dirty to basically set that standard. Um, you yeah. know, if it's easy, just like you said, it's easy to, to start a, probably a hotel booking platform, whether from the meta, because there's already a lot of connectivity. But ultimately, the question we have to ask is, what is the edge that we're building, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think when we look at the experiences industry, and that's the edge, it's the standard that we're setting with the uh, merchants um, who are very non-digital savvy um, and, and is not able to keep up with all the travelers coming from all around the world. You know, this new millennial, which is very different from group tours. So that's where we add value. So those are indeed the standards that we have to set. It is a painful task. And I think for the larger OTAs, um, when they looked at this industry, they were like, you know, it's just getting the hands too dirty. <laughs> but someone has to do it. And if someone is able to do that, that's ultimately is a competitive edge. Yeah, Dave? Yeah, so you mentioned outbound. Um, and I think that's a really interesting uh, thing to delve into next because uh, I feel like the outbound market is one that a lot of people don't understand. So Chinese outbound travelers need all these different things when they come to, to other countries. And you mentioned how mostly uh, you guys were focused on uh, stuff within Southeast Asia and China, but uh, Europe was mostly to satisfy those outbound customers. Uh, how have you thought about servicing that outbound market uh, versus servicing internally uh, within Southeast Asia and, and China? Yeah, well, um, you know, the consumer market is, is humongous. So uh, what we eventually came down to is the millennial crowd, right? So whether it's China outbound or is it kind of, you know, Korean outbound or, or Southeast Asia outbound, um, yes, each market has their own needs, but at least you have to be a bit more, well, at least we thought that we have to be at least a bit more focused than trying to really cater for everyone. So by narrowing ourselves to the category of uh, millennials, we can find more similarities despite they come from different cultures. So that's how we come, came about it. And I think that is also where we excel. And that can drive also differently on how we uh, approach marketing and, and customer acquisition. Um, with OTAs, I think it's widely known that it's mainly rely on search advertising. Uh, in fact, for us, uh, three, three quarter of our traffic, uh, one, uh, yeah, uh, two third of our traffic is actually coming from direct channels, or organic channels, uh, or non-paid channels, if I may call that. Um, and, and that's, I think, also set, uh, set us apart from, you know, the other OTAs. 
So, you know, I remember one of my first business trips to China, I met with a bunch of uh, local providers and one of them is their, their entire uh, specialty was Mandarin drivers in New York City. And the whole point was it was catering to the, the outbound uh, travelers who didn't speak English when they landed. So it almost sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, your, your strategy is more, let's target the guys that I don't have to worry about getting them a Mandarin driver. They're millennials, they speak English. Uh, is that basically, you kind of said, you know, eliminate some of these, these problems uh, and just focus? Yeah, so that, that's exactly uh, the right answer. So again, we look at scale, right? Now, if China in, in substance alone is indeed a big enough market, um, whereby if going into Chinese drivers and servicing that market makes sense, we would also do that. But at the same time, we have to be realistic is where, well, if I can get the, as many Chinese travelers who's going outbound, then why not target you know, the millennial crowd who, who can, can speak English and Korean can also. But eventually, I, I agree with you and I agree with um, uh, the company that you met is China ultimately is a very sizable market. So it does make sense to even just be focused on a specific segment in China and grow from there as well. And that is to, to us a step-by-step uh, approach. Now, whenever we've spoken in the past, Eric, I think we've, I've interviewed you a couple of times on the stage at Focus Right and stuff like that. And you always talk so eloquently and positively about the experience of running Kluge. Apart from, let's say, the delay in appointing a HR person, what other, what, what other mistakes would you admit to having made along the way? Yeah, well, I would say, you know, it's, for us to grow from 400 to now about you know 1500 people, uh, we definitely needed people that, that comes with a bit more experience in scaling business, and I would say that we were a little yeah. late in that. Um, so, at this, but uh, however, at the same time, you know, it becomes a very you know, big question of a culture fit, right? Um, you always want to retain that startup mindset, but at the same time, we have to be realistic about that. And I think we came to that real, uh, uh, reality a bit late. Um, but the good thing is, you know, over the last year plus, um, we've brought on, you know, people that are in the right mindset, uh, for example, you know, being agile, being in a startup mode, in a growth mode, but at the same time has an experience to be able to scale up, uh, build up an entirely, for example, sales team. I think that's, you know, very, very important rather than kind of still relying on, 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 um, on, on manual process, for example, right? To be able to build out uh, a, a process and technology to not just for the consumer, but internally as well. I think that's where yeah. we've also been, been uh, lagging a bit behind. Yeah, I'm always interested in the, you know, the, the, the culture word for startups and, you know, especially those that have grown so quickly uh, headcount wise um, over time and especially those that have spread geographically. I mean, what, do you, what, do you, what are some of the things that you do to, you know, maintain the culture of the company? I mean, do you do weekly all company meetings. I mean, what, what, what do you do to kind of spread your vision across the tentacles of the business around the world? Yeah. I mean, it does, I think there's no perfect answer to that. And, and culture is, is a very, very big word. Um, I would say, you know, for us looking back, what worked um, is ensuring our first hundred employees till today, majority of them are still around and okay. putting them all across the world. So obviously the first hundred was probably mainly from Hong Kong where we started, you know, Singapore, the next hub that we, we, we built, um, and then Shenzhen even, right? But by, by now, actually, most of our early employees are no longer in Hong Kong. 
we've flown them to other places, you know, to help start the, uh, the, the team there and stay there. They may not continue to be leading a team there, but, you know, they still play a key role. And I think having that, you know, I'm very appreciative, you know, for the fact that it's been, you know, almost five years uh, and, and they're still around with us. And I think that to us, you know, was able to really keep that culture. What is that culture? I think it's, to me, it's honestly, it's very hard to answer, but I think that has really helped the team to come together, uh, have that strong belonging still. Okay. So I think that's a perfect segue actually into uh, one of our final questions here about location. So you uh, are based in Hong Kong. You mentioned Shenzhen and Singapore and Shenzhen is a somewhere between a special economic zone, almost charter city, but you know, Hong Kong started out as a charter city. Uh, you know, these are economic areas that um, are very unique uh, compared to a lot of the, uh, the surroundings and you seem to have chosen three out of three of the, the ones that people speak about in the region. So I, I'm curious how you think about um, where you choose to locate, um, considering everything that's going on, you know, being you know, sensitive here to the, like the very delicate uh, situation going on in Hong Kong right now. But um, how do you think about uh, where to locate people as you expand to other countries and currently even? Yeah, well, well, I think what drives our decision is looking at where the talent pool is, right? So admittedly, Hong Kong does not have engineers. So definitely from, an, from a tech development innovation hub, uh, it's not Hong Kong, and, and that's what we decided in, in Shenzhen, right? Now, despite what's been happening here in Hong Kong, I still think that there are a lot of talent, you know, more on the corporate service side, meaning, you know, HR, you know, legal, uh, and so forth. Um, now, building out more digital marketing actually isn't really also the forte of Hong Kong, but more so of Singapore, right? So that's where we've also positioned a lot of our talent there. So we are very... I would say we really look at where, what talent do we need and where are they, and then eventually kind of build that, um, that, that team uh, on the ground locally. And then specifically on demand and supply, uh, we strongly believe on the local operation model. Um, so we not only base our sales team on the ground, but we also build, uh, base our demand team on the ground uh, to be a lot more closer to the customer, um, to be able to be able to relate to them uh, much more. One of the things that I found quite interesting about the Klug story, and it's it kind of, this is something to do with online travel that goes back over 15 years. You know, we are in a period now where many companies based in Asia have started making forays into international markets. We've had, you know, C-Trip's acquisition of Skyscanner and, you know, the trip.com, which has now become the name and in your ambitions in, in Europe. And there, 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 there appears to be almost a, a great degree in co of confidence that you're able to do this. And the reason why I say that is because, well, what's an, an interesting kind of contrast there is that so many Western companies try to do the same and come to Asia 15, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, we had Expedia with the Elong, you know, TripAdvisor trying to do its thing. And, you know, and they've all ended up either investing or partnering with companies. What is it about your either values or the way you do business that makes you confident that you can come westwards to set up businesses over here or to set up subsidiaries over here? Yeah, well, I would say point out back to the roots of um, an Asian, um, how many Asians grew up, you know, speaking English, watching Hollywood movies, right? To some extent, just already understanding a bit of a Western culture, right? Versus if you look at US and, uh, and Europe, how many of them actually grew up, you know, understanding Asia from whatever media. So to some extent, yeah. actually we had, I would say we have a bit of advantage of doing this globalization truly, because to some extent, 
you know, relatively well better position. I think what was lacking in Asia, one was talent and second was capital. And I think a lot of those talent um, actually are returnees from the West, right? Because there was this um, uh, education boom from Asia towards studying in the West and a lot of them are, are now willing to come back. And second, uh, because of a rising consumerism in Asia, capital eventually came here as well. Uh, along with that is innovation. So admittedly, if you look at China, um, a lot of innovation um, you know, uh, started happening over the last decade, and those innovations are now very much applicable to uh, the West as well uh, by leveraging technology, right? Technology as a platform is scalable, uh, and that's where we're doing it. Um, however, I would say in the service industry, that has been still yet to be proven, and I hope that you know, Clip will be uh, a good example of, of, of that success because we've seen, yes, a lot of... Uh, I guess Asian companies trying to go abroad, but it's been really much in the hardware industry, right? Um, or yeah. utility product, right? Um, yeah. Samsung or, or even you know higher or those have a name. But from a service industry-wise, um, I think it's hard to name one that has truly conquered that, right? Um, to be able to be uh, relevant in the West as well, um, and we hope that we will be the first. Okay, last last question from us then, because we're coming up against time. I mean, um. We tend, because, you know, how I got here is very much about the backstory and the history of individuals and their companies. But, you know, it would be kind of remiss of us not to give some kind of context to what's been going on, as we say, over the last four or five months. I mean, as a as a startup, if you still do call yourself a startup or a young business, I mean, how much of a, a kind of a, a, a blip along the road has this last couple of months been for, for the business? Yeah. Well, I would say very much in line of likely where, you know, you've heard from the industry uh, news where it's definitely taken a big toll uh, on the business. I think, you know, as speak to other peers in the market, um, as everyone said, this is, you know, all the, all the natural disaster um, plus crisis put together um, as, as bad as that. Um, but luckily is over the last few weeks, we're already seeing the bottoming out. Actually, we are seeing uh, growth picking back up in places where um, it's starting to unlock. Um, and I think the advantage of doing in-destination services and specifically experiences is it's you would do experiences when you go abroad, but you would also do experiences yeah. when you're at home, right? Rather than if you were only in flights and to some extent maybe hotel, right? That is, there's a stronger need when you go overseas. Um, but experiences is very much relevant, whether you are in a big country like US or China, where obviously domestic tourism, all the way to a smaller place like Hong Kong or Singapore, there are still local experiences. And that's where we're seeing organically uh, consumers still converting and coming to us uh, for things to do. Have you guys done the, the Airbnb virtual events thing or uh, tried to dabble in, into any of that? Yeah, well, we, we did launch that. We, we launched um, Club Home, um, which one part of that is, is virtual experiences. Um, and the latest one that was done last week um, actually received quite a good uh, uh, feedback. We saw over close to 500,000 views um, on a zoo in, in Bali. And we definitely saw a lot of Asian uh, travelers, well, aspiring travelers um, did ha have um, come online, uh, but we also saw European um, kind of looking into. So I think it it's definitely has potential there, but ultimately I still believe that people still have that travel bug and would like to get out um, and, and experience the, the travel uh, in person. Okay. Uh, Eric Nokfar, that was, uh, that was great. Thank you very much uh, for joining us on this episode of How I Got Here. Thank you so much. 
Okay, and uh, thank you everybody to that's uh, tuning in. This is how I got here. That's uh, Mozio and Focuswise weekly podcast where we talk to the innovators and entrepreneurs in travel and transportation. Thanks ever so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week. Thank you.